Well, uh, last week we looked at Jesus uh, healing a man who had been crippled for 38 years. Uh, It is the third sign in John's Gospel, and we're doing a series of sermons on signs in John's Gospel. A sign is John's word for miracle, and John selects seven of them for us to look at in detail. This third sign differs from the first two insofar as a long conversation ensues in direct response to the sign. Uh, We'll see that again when we look at the fourth sign and also when we look at the sixth sign. So uh, last week we looked at uh, the sign itself, uh, verses 1 to 15 in chapter 5. This week we're going to look at the conversation that developed in direct response. And it's a good conversation to look at because Jesus himself tells us what the sign means. Well, uh, you might wish to keep your Bibles open at page 864 and follow along as we work through this passage. Uh, Verse 16. So, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. These things. Well, Jesus was healing people on the Sabbath day. Now, all four Gospels record the fact that Jesus obviously thought and taught that the Sabbath day was a particularly appropriate day for him to do healing miracles on. And he's going to do it again in John's Gospel. Excuse me. In chapter 9, when he heals a man born blind, he does that on the Sabbath day as well. And in this these things phrase, John is signaling to us again that this latest instance of a sign, sign number three from the reader's point of view, it was just one of many, many miracles that Jesus did. He's just picking out some particular ones for us to look at in detail. So he's doing these things, many healing miracles on Sabbath days. And it's clear from the different gospel accounts that Jesus had many reasons for doing this. Healing people on the Sabbath day and not infrequently actually healing people on the Sabbath day in synagogues while they were at worship. But all of this healing people on the Sabbath day, it really got up the noses of the Jewish religious establishment because as far as they were concerned, Jesus was breaking the Sabbath. Now, as you may remember from last week or you may already know, the fourth commandment of the Ten Commandments reads... Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. Now, in the Old Testament, this fourth commandment uh, becomes enormously significant. Again and again, the people of Israel under the Old Covenant, they broke this commandment, trading in the marketplaces with Canaanites on the Sabbath day and in many, many other ways, just ignoring it completely and making that which was meant to be holy profane. And the prophets of old, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, they all prophesy against Sabbath breakers. Why? Well, because the Sabbath was to be a really important sign, a way of treating God as holy, a way of demonstrating to the nations around them what it looked like to actually trust God to provide for you, and also a way of treating people as people, a way of treating people properly, allowing everybody a rest, a day off, 
And in doing so, valuing people, and especially slaves, as being more important than, than just their work. So in the Old Testament then, Sabbath observance was to be the key ethical distinctive for the Old Covenant people of God. The thing God wanted them to do differently, above all else, to show the world that he was different, to show the world that they were different. And so from the Babylonian exile onwards, that is from about the 6th century BC through to the 1st century AD, the Jewish rabbis took Sabbath observance to be absolutely critical. And they created and they embellished dozens and dozens of rules as to what was and what wasn't work, and therefore what was or wasn't acceptable to do on the Sabbath. So then, with Jesus doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders were outraged. They were persecuting him. Verse 17, In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at work, sorry, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. Uh, Now, if you'll just humor me just for a moment, I really dislike that phrase in his defense, and I have no idea why the NIV translators thought it necessary to include it. The Greek words are simply, and Jesus answered them. There's one thing that Jesus never did, it was self-defense. Jesus doesn't need to, nor does he ever defend himself. Not sure why they put those words in. Jesus answered them. When he spoke, he just spoke the truth. He didn't need to defend himself. But Jesus' words are extraordinary. The Jews would not have referred to God as my father. That, that's just beyond their thinking. Possibly our father, but never my father. They may have expected Jesus as a rabbi. They may have expected Jesus to begin with, the God and Father of Israel is always at his work. Or they may have expected him to say, the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is always at his work. But there's no way they would have expected Jesus to say, my Father is always at his work. Jesus is speaking explicitly about a kind of relationship with God that none of these men had ever had, yearned for, or even imagined might be possible. My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. This is the key line in the whole text. Jesus is referring to an idea that he and the Pharisees and the Jewish, Jewish religious leaders, they, they themselves, they had in common an idea that they commonly believed about how God rests and how God works. You see, in the Genesis account of the creation, the seventh day is described in these terms, Genesis chapter 2, verse 2. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he was doing, so on the seventh day he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Uh, If you're familiar with chapter 1, you'll know that this seventh day is an odd day. It's not like the other six days. There is no and there was evening and there was morning, the seventh day formula. So this seventh day is actually a never-ending day. It's an unending day. It's a different day. 
God entered into rest and he never stopped resting. God is constantly at rest. And indeed, in the gospel, he invites us into his rest. God is constantly at rest. But, on the other hand, actually, one in seven babies is born on a Sabbath day. So, clearly, God is constantly at work. He never stops working. He never stops the working, working of his creation. And, in fact, one in seven people die on a Sabbath day. And so then God never stops working in taking life away, in judging, if you will. God is always giving life, sustaining life. God is always judging, taking life. God is always at work. This was the Pharisees' own understanding, and so it would be no surprise for them to hear Jesus say that. They wouldn't have been surprised at all if Jesus had said, God is always at work to this very day. That wouldn't have surprised them. They would have agreed with that. But as we've seen, what he actually says is, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. Verse 18 For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Well, uh, verse 18 is actually shorthand. Jesus wasn't doing this. What the author is telling us is what they thought Jesus was doing. They thought Jesus was breaking the Sabbath. They thought Jesus was making himself equal with God. And actually, the Jews had a proverb, and the proverb was, the son who makes himself equal to his father is his father's enemy. And that proverb is right. To insist upon equality is to insist upon independence. Now, um, it was understood in the ancient world, right across the ancient world, that a son represented his father. Imagine, for example, let's go back in 2,000 years and we are a really small village, somewhere isolated and poor, and we're all very, very poor, and um, the synagogue, uh, there's a problem, uh, it collapses a little, it collapses a lot, and uh, there is some question as to whether we, as a community, can afford those repairs to the synagogue. So what we do is we call an urgent town meeting, and uh, we're, we're all there at the town meeting. But we're waiting for Mr. Bloggs, because Mr. Bloggs is the richest man in the whole district. And we all know that unless Mr. Bloggs turns up and acts generously, we'll never be able to undertake all the reconstruction work. We won't be able to afford it. So we're waiting for Mr. Bloggs. And the time for the meeting comes, and the time for the meeting uh, arrives and goes, and there's no sign of Mr. Bloggs. And we all shuffle nervously um, and wait, because really there's no point in having a meeting unless he turns up. But after an anxious wait, suddenly somebody arrives. It isn't Mr. Bloggs, but it is Mr. Bloggs' son. And we all breathe a collective sigh of relief because in our culture, the son represents the father. He can and he will make a decision on his father's behalf. Phew! If the son's present, then we can do a deal. Mr. Bloggs' son, let's call him Nigel. Nigel knows his father's character and his priorities and his business interests intimately. And so Nigel is able to represent his father, making decisions on his father's behalf. 
even if the conversation swerves in a direction that wasn't anticipated, Mr. Bloggs will naturally honour whatever decision is made by his son who represents him. By his son, Nigel. So then, Nigel has the authority of his father, but it is a delegated authority. For Nigel to make himself equal to his dad is only necessary if he wants to usurp his dad, take over, and exert his own will in contradiction to his father's will. So too, Adam and Eve in the garden, it it was all about equality. It was all about equality with God. That's why they wanted the fruit. They were told it would make them equal to God. They would have the knowledge of good and evil. They'd be equal to God. And they grasped for equality with God. And in doing so, they were usurping him, rejecting him, ignoring him in order to go their own way. Any claim for equality is also a move for independence. Now, according to the law of Moses, the punishment for breaking the Sabbath was death by stoning. Jesus is already guilty of that as far as the leaders are concerned. Now, he appears to be claiming equality with God. If he's doing that, he's rejecting God, usurping God's authority, and that's blasphemy. The punishment for blasphemy was death by stoning. Jesus, in the leader's eyes, has committed two capital offenses in one day. Verse 19, Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. So then, Jesus rejects equality with its necessary connection to independence and insists upon unity and dependence. Dependence. Jesus can do nothing by himself. This doesn't mean, surely, that Jesus is physically incapable of doing anything by himself. I mean, he's a human being, just like you, just like me. He has a human will and a human capacity to execute his own judgment. The dependence of which he speaks, by himself he can do nothing, surely describes a choice, a decision of his will to surrender his will to his father's will, so that it is his delight not only to act in perfect unity, but also by way of perfect two-way intimacy. The son does only what he sees the father doing, and the father shows him everything that he is doing. Now, on the one hand, these statements totally rip the guts out of the Pharisees' accusation. Jesus is not claiming equality with God. On the other hand, Jesus, even in destroying the charges made against him, is testifying to a relationship with God that is unique, unique and extraordinary. What Jesus is talking about is alien to human experience. Nobody in the Old Testament could claim to have a relationship with God like this. The the only person who conceivably, possibly may have had an intimacy with God like this might have been Adam in the garden before the fall. Otherwise, this is just alien to human experience. 
none of the prophets, not even the holiest of them or the wisest knew God in such intimate terms. This is something qualitatively different. Verse 20, yes, and he will show them even greater works than these so that you will be amazed. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Well, Jesus has deflected the charge of making himself equal to God, but his words only make sense if he understands himself to be God. Because at every turn, Jesus, being the Son, now exercises God-only prerogatives. He exercises God-only powers. The power to give life, the power to raise the dead, the power to judge humanity. Only God does these things. Only God can do these things. So then, here's the thing. Jesus is not equal to God. Rather, he is God. We can now see sign number three in a new light. Jesus healed the crippled man. And when he did so, here was the son giving life to whomever he was pleased to give life. The son is giving life. And when he said, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you, Jesus was judging, making a judgment. And in all of this, Jesus was grace and truth. Grace, the man was healed with no conditions attached. Grace, the man had no faith, didn't even know who Jesus was. Truth, unless the man repents and turns back to God, something infinitely worse than just being crippled for 38 years is going to happen to him. Truth. Verse 24, very truly I tell you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but is crossed over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Well, Jesus uh, is describing both future and present realities. A time is coming in the future, a future reality, the resurrection of the dead, when the dead will hear the voice of God and will rise to judgment. A time has now come, a present reality, even on that day, even on the day when that happened. Now, in the Bible, um, the ultimate meaning of death is disconnection from God. Death in the Bible can mean just ordinary death as we experience and know it, but, but actually, ultimately, death is about separation, eternal separation from God. That's why Jesus, occasionally in his teaching, can refer to alive people as being dead because they are unrepentant. They are not right with God. They're not connected to God. So then Jesus is talking about a present reality. Even on that day, as people listen to Jesus, as they hear him speak, and they believe in him, they're crossing over from death to life. They're crossing over into eternal life. Verse 26, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, 
and he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing. I, only, I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I do not seek to please myself, but him who sent me. Well, Jesus now finishes the claims, about him, the claims he makes about himself in view of the accusations of the Jewish leaders. Jesus has healed a crippled man on the Sabbath in order to demonstrate that he is God with us. One who is always at work, one who is always about God's work, one who has the authority to give life, one who judges, one who calls people up out of the grave. This is Christ's own understanding of himself, that he is God at work amongst us. But God among us as God the Son, like Father, like Son. The Son comes in perfect obedience, acting perfectly according to his Father's agenda, knowing perfectly his Father's business interests, characters, priorities, and will. Now, as uh, many have pointed out, you only say things like this if you are either absolutely bonkers, really, really evil, or actually God. They're the only three choices we have. And Jesus knows that extraordinary evidence is needed for extraordinary claims. And so in verses 31 to the conclusion of the chapter, Jesus shows them how they should evaluate what he's just said to them. He offers them three lines of evidence for the extraordinary claims he's just made. First line of evidence they should consider is the testimony of John the Baptist, who consistently pointed to Jesus as the one to whom people should go. Jesus reminds them that at the time of John the Baptist's ministry, they all considered him to be an authentic prophetic voice. So line one, remember John the Baptist. Line two, consider the miracles. These miracles were extraordinary miracles. And as we have seen, they just demand some kind of verdict. Indeed, even as one of their own number famously observed, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could do the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Second line of evidence, consider the miracles. Third line of evidence, Jesus points to the scriptures. And in context, that means the Old Testament. And he says, this is all about me. It's all about me. Now, these three testimonies, these three areas, they're huge in and of themselves, and they are each a topic for another day. It's time to draw some conclusions about this text and what it means for us. How will we apply it? How will we live differently? Well, let's think about this. Um, if it is true, and I for one have no doubt that it's true, but if it is true that Jesus, the Son, does only what the Father wants him to do, says only what the Father wants him to say, and does and says the things that he does and says only in the way that the Father wants him to act and to speak, then actually, when we look at Jesus in the Bible, we see 
God perfectly. And that is precisely the claim that the Bible makes. If you want to see God perfectly in all of his glory, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus in the Bible. You see God perfectly. That's who God is. The Son representing the Father perfectly. But, seeing as that's actually what all of us were made for, every human being was made to represent God in his image and his likeness. Genesis 1, verse 28. Right at the start, we learned this is what human beings were made for, to represent God in his image and likeness. Then, in showing us perfectly what God is like, Jesus is also showing us perfectly what it means to be a human being. Both things together simultaneously at once without contradiction. Shows us perfectly who God is. Shows us perfectly what it means to be a human being. And as a human being, as God with us, Jesus says, by myself I can do nothing. By myself I can do nothing. Now, I'm not sure if it strikes you in the same way, but I consider them odd words to hear from the mouth of an adult. Um, I don't know, and I'm not even sure how to check, but I would be surprised if there is any other famous man in history who ever said anything even close to, by myself, I can do nothing. A child might say, can you please help me? And then the day might come when the child grows up and he or she says, I can do this all by myself. Well, Jesus can't do it all by himself. Jesus is showing us what it truly means to be human, to be totally dependent upon God in loving obedience and in intimate unity. You might say, how can this be? How can you know God that well? And the answer is this. You must be born again. If you haven't been born again, or you're unsure about whether or not you've been born again, or you'd like to be born again, then please see me at the conclusion of this service or talk to any Christian whom you trust. To be filled with the Holy Spirit is to be born again, to be under new management. To be born again is to be invited into that same relationship that Jesus speaks about in today's text by the Spirit. The gospel message is an invitation to participate in the triune Godhead, to use theological language for a moment. So then, for example, when we pray, we might pray the Lord's Prayer, Our Father in Heaven, That's not an invitation to call God our Father. That's an invitation to call God the Father, Father. That's an invitation to come into the triune Godhead. An invitation as a guest of Jesus, as a guest of the Father who treats every friend of his sons as his friend. And always welcome in his household. That's to come into that. That's to come into the person of God, to see God from the inside, and to participate in the conversation that's happening within God. There is no reason then 
why any Christian can't say, very truly I tell you, by myself I can do nothing, but only what I see my Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, I also do. For the Father loves me and is showing me all that he's doing. So then, um, that's a good prayer to pray uh, here, today, at home, at work, at school, in the playground, in the boardroom, wherever you might happen to be. You can pray, Father, please show me all that you are doing and how you'd like me to join in as your representative. Or, more briefly, what are you doing, Lord? What are you doing, Lord? Father, what are you doing? How can I join in? And here is a good Bible verse to memorize and to think about, to meditate, to chew over. By myself, I can do nothing. By myself, I can do nothing. This is what the Lord says uh, through his prophet Isaiah in chapter 41, verse 8 and following. The Lord says, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend, I took you from the ends of the earth. From its farthest corners I called you. I said, you are my servant. I have chosen you and have not rejected you. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. By myself I can do nothing, but God promises to help me. Amen.